This is one of the Center's new series, Lore Civil Society Perspectives on the Emerging Digital World. Each discussion will be a call to action for civil society organizations to take a more active role in shaping our digital future. My name is Barbara Iverson. I teach interpersonal skills and intercultural management at Code University of Applied Sciences here in Berlin. And I will be your moderator for tonight's discussion. So today we're taking a look at the issue of where are ethical red lines for the use of digital tools by civil society organizations. And I'm very pleased to introduce our three panelists. They all approach this topic with quite different perspectives. So we're looking forward to what they're sharing with us today. We'll start with Tim. Tim Dagori is talking to us from Nairobi. All right. Thank you very much, Bob. Very happy to be joining you all today. So as you've heard, my name is Tim Daguri Mayori. I work in the governance and digital security practice at Co-Creation Hub. And Co-Creation Hub is Africa's largest innovation hub dedicated to accelerating the application of social capital and technology for economic prosperity. And so we do this through our areas of focus, innovation support, startup funding, education, public health, and governance and digital security. Please allow me to talk about our work and share some of the learnings from the work we've done in the recent past, especially with CSOs, NGOs, and grassroots organizations. We, as the GovLab or Governance and Digital Security Practice, we support develop and roll out initiatives to promote either good governance, improve public service delivery, increase citizen engagement, and protect the online space. So we are currently transitioning into what we call the technology and society practice. And this was basically born out of some of the things we're discussing today the opportunities and complexities brought forth by advancements in tech and the corresponding need to make tech work for the African society. So I'll be speaking also from that context. And we believe strongly that tech can drive needed change to and solve some of Africa's most pressing and recurring problems around democracy, governance, equity, and human rights. As we do this, we also understand that technology can pose challenges and threats to individuals and communities. And it can be employed, and indeed we've seen that uh, it's been employed to stifle freedom, uh, repress groups, and even attack CSO organizations, uh, CSOs such as ourselves, which is why we're also very proactive about digital resilience and digital safety. So for a while now, we've carried out vulnerability assessments on CSOs and at-risk organizations and individuals on the continent. For organizations, have been about 30 and plus and hundreds and hundreds of, of devices as well as threats analysis and incidents responses. I think since 2019, we have done around 42 distress calls and nine high profile cases that I want to mention for obvious reasons. But among some of our learnings is that CSOs, and I hope I don't offend anyone, are still very low tech. Adaptation of what someone might call disruptive technologies is still very, very low. And of course, when the pandemic hit, there was adaptation of mostly meeting platforms, you know, the Zoom, the Google Meet, et cetera. And then for a lot of CSOs, what we realize is that they keep lots of databases. I mean, every other day we are filling in different forms. So where does all this information go? So this database contains lots and lots of personal identifiable information. So the most common threats that we've seen in our work that we've observed include surveillance, unauthorized access and modification of data, data loss and leakage, and malware attacks. 
privacy is a guaranteed right provided for in the laws of most, if not all, African countries, including in most of their constitutions. In addition to international law, yet we've seen that surveillance is a growing threat to democracy. We've seen states and companies investing in mass surveillance tech. I mean, it's, it's pretty actually alarming, thereby even just directly violating fundamental rights, uh, freedoms, and even democracy. Targets have included, you know, activists, BCSO organizations I'm talking about, journalists, opposition politicians, and even justices of courts. And this is funded mostly, as we've seen, by states, corporations, just generally people with commercial or political interests on the continent. And this is either those who are on the continent or even those from outside. I guess some examples I could give that are in the public domain, of course, is the case of Cambridge Analytica, Snowden, where actually UK and South Africa admitted to, to using bulk interception tools. Of course, the latest being uh, Pegasus that we know, at least. So for me, when it comes to ethical red lines, having given you that context, rather than take a hardline stance, my position is that we must evaluate the opportunities against the threats. Let's not throw out the, the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Most tech is dual use. It can be used as much to serve malicious or lethal purposes as it can be harnessed to enhance development, whether social or economic. Then, of course, whilst being alive to the concerns that tech and how it is used will pose some serious challenges, then my recommendations then for CSOs would, would be five. One, I would say we should be able to identify key principles and values, and I don't think that would be difficult. I'm, I'm talking things like equity, equality, inclusivity, responsibility, transparency, accountability, all stuff that we already know. And then secondly, I'd say defining standards and best practices for CSOs, that, that's specific to CSOs. Then three, ensuring crafting of suitable laws and regulations and really holding high-level policymakers or, or any level really accountable. And then four, of course, engaging the stakeholders, you know, regulators, business leaders, even amongst ourselves. And then five, seeing how to enhance transparency, oversight, and accountability. That would be my position when it comes to ethical redline. Tim, thank you so much. We will come back to you. But first, I would like to introduce Zara Rahman. She's coming to us from also here in Berlin. Welcome, Zara. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bob. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Zara. I'm the Deputy Director at The Engine Room, an organization that seeks to support civil society in using technology in a way that strengthens their work um, and supports them in using it responsibly and safely. So I'll just talk for a few minutes and obviously I'm happy to go into anything else in more detail in the Q&A. So our work or from what I've seen, ethics really needs to be driven from values. An organization's digital strategy must be understood as an integral part of their mission and their values and not separately, which I think is something that we often see. I think we need to understand the online and the offline or the digital and the non-digital no longer as separate spaces, but really as the kind of embodied, integrated spaces that they are. One good litmus test that I like using when it comes to deciding whether or not a tool should be built or some data should be collected or not is would the person building the tool or collecting the data be comfortable with using it themselves or with having their family or their loved ones be represented in a database or in with a tool in the way that they're asking others to be? 
I think in this, there's also much that we can learn from history and much that we're currently not learning from history, hence some of the, the many mistakes that civil society are making today. Because though digital tools are new, collecting data on people is obviously not. For example, with the recent scandal seems to, not strong enough, but catastrophe, I'll say, of detailed personal data and biometrics on the Rohingya being handed to the Bangladeshi government by UNHCR, which was then handed to the government of Myanmar, so the people who committed the genocide against the Rohingya, it's very clear that that data should never have been collected in the first place. And it only really takes a minute of thinking through to know this. As a thought experiment, I'm sitting in Germany. If I were to ask a Jewish person if they would be comfortable having themselves and their families be included in a database of Jewish people that would then be handed to Nazis, the answer would of course be no. That's not a tricky or a complex decision to make. It's extremely obvious. It's incredibly obvious. And the risks and the very, very life-changing, very real risks are also extremely clear. So by not learning from history, by not carrying out these kinds of thought experiments and seeing them through to potentially ending the collection of data or not seeing the creation of a database or not creating at all. We really do risk violating many what you might call ethical red lines. But at this point, it's not just about ethics. It's about human lives. And I know Matt is going to go into this more, but I really do think that ethics is completely insufficient at this point. At an ideal, civil society would use tech to strengthen their work to ensure that the, what we're doing is faster and more efficient to enable us to detect patterns that we couldn't see otherwise. And that's, I guess, another debate. But at a minimum, how can we ensure that civil society does not do harm in the way that they use digital technology? For me, first, that comes by translating an organization's mission and values into a digital strategy that really reflects and prioritizes the needs and the rights of the people that an organization is seeking to work with. That means really ensuring that power dynamics are deeply understood within that digital strategy by critically assessing the claims that come particularly from the private sector about what a technology can and can't do and understanding what those limitations are. No technology is a silver bullet. No technology is going to solve deeply rooted structural injustices. And it's important that we don't look to technology to do that, that we acknowledge that the work of civil society should be facing those structural injustices and thinking in a long-term way and thinking how we can address those in a meaningful way. I think it's also important, and this is something that I often see not happening, to properly resource that strategy. So operationalizing, thinking through whether you call it ethical red lines or what you sh the strategy, operationalizing that takes time and takes resources. It's much easier and much cheaper to decide to build a tool and just go for it without taking the time to think through much of this stuff. But properly doing it, doing it right, means ensuring staff have the resources and the time and the support to take their time and prioritize effectiveness and impact on you know the kind of impact that we want, not efficiency or speed or speed in a, a way that is not useful. We need to think about accountability, not to donors, but to accountability to the people who are reflected in the tools and the people who are reflected in the data. I think it's important to, as I said, think through what the worst case scenarios are that could happen with a proposed tool or database. And this is absolutely crucial. Be prepared to pull the plug on a project if those worst cases are at all feasible or particularly life-changing or impactful in, the, in a bad way. I guess just to close, I think it's important to remember that civil society 
is not, we're not government, we're not the private sector. And we as a sector should be leading the way on establishing ethical approaches of using tech or data. We shouldn't be following the terrible examples of government and the private sector. It's not sufficient to rely on slow to update data protect legislation or to follow best practices that are established by the private sector, which is clearly driven by profit. Instead, we need civil society to step up and establish our own best practices, their own best practices. And just two quick examples to, to share before I close. Oxfam recently published their biometrics policy, which outlines a really well thought out process and justification for when they would use biometrics and when they won't and ICRC's biometrics policy. Both are, were done collaboratively over a long period of time, meaningfully involving a number of groups and are still open for feedback. Um, so I would love to see more organizations following their lead. And I don't think it's unreasonable to expect. I think we need to up our expectations, if anything. We need to recognize that digital data and digital tools form an ever increasing part of the work of civil society. And it's time that our work and our strategies reflected this. Zara, thank you so much. We will come back to you as well in a moment. But first, Matt Mahmoudi is currently in London. Matt, could you turn on There You Are and you can unmute yourself and take a few moments to tell us who you are and about your perspective on this topic. Sure. Hi, folks. Thanks so much for having me. First of all, here it's so great to hear from Zara as well on this. Also come from at, at this from a from a slightly slightly different perspective. But uh, yeah, just by way of introduction, my name is Matt Mamudi. I am an advisor and researcher on artificial intelligence and human rights at Amnesty's Technology and Human Rights Program. And in the everyday, I predominantly lead up our efforts to ban facial recognition technologies for mass surveillance and to target it surveillance globally. And some of that work is going to directly feed into what I'm going to be talking about today. So I want to start by perhaps settling the question at the core of the debate a little bit. And then this goes more along the lines of what Zara was talking about. I'm well aware that I'm perhaps opening myself up to being framed a little conspiratorially. So I personally find it quite difficult to reckon with the possibility for ethics and ethical red lines in the first place for technologies that should neither be built nor used. And that's to say that you can't ethics bad technology into good technology. So to create a permissive environment for certain technologies would be to legitimize the undergirding structures, power differentials, discrimination, and logics of surveillance that often birth these technologies in the first place. So let me just try and unpick this statement in, in two ways. First of all, I'll briefly outline surface level grievances we might have with certain technologies, for example, along human rights terms, in particular biometric surveillance, which we've obviously talked about a little bit already, especially biometric surveillance deployed by humanitarian organizations in particular, also by law enforcement agencies and others. And then secondly, I'd like to draw attention to the need for civil society organizations and NGOs to take responsibility for the kinds of long-term dynamics of oppression and exploitation that they might unintentionally facilitate through remaining complicit in the use of technologies of the aforementioned kind. So even with strong ethical red lines, as it were, in place, contractual relations with bad actors often help sustain a political economy of violence. Again, I'll get back to that. So just to my first point, some of the technologies that we've already discussed today, such as biometric surveillance, are sometimes completely incompatible with international human rights law, for example. Obviously, we needn't go into law to be able to observe the kinds of violence that these technologies sometimes cause. But just to bring some up as an example, we have facial recognition technology for identification, which is a technology of mass surveillance. It's something that I work on in my everyday. It is a technology that is fundamentally incompatible with the right to privacy by design and by application. What do we mean by that? Well, 
the way that facial recognition for identification works is that it usually is constructed through the establishment of a large database of images that have been scraped without users' knowledge content, oftentimes by bad technology actors such as Clearview AI, for example, who might have collected this data uh, using people's social media profiles. Again, you might even, as an audience member today, find that your pictures are in their database. That database is then used to compare an input image to see if there is a match. So by design, again, they depend on mass surveillance. So it's, it's incompatible with the right to privacy on uh, by design. And then in terms of by application, of course, the technology is deployed oftentimes in public squares to police protests, for example, oftentimes at the expense of black and brown populations in particular, who are subjected to harassment and indiscriminate surveillance simply for exercising the right to protest and the right to free assembly and expression. And that's kind of what brings me to the two other rights that it stands to be in violation of which is the right to equality and non-discrimination. So facial recognition, as we know, also has the bias problem insofar as its ability to recognize black and brown bodies is concerned. Uh, depending on what you look at and where you look at and what tool you look at in particular, it ranges between 30 to 60%, sometimes 90% inaccuracy rates. So throwing up false positives, so that's false matches. Uh, between faces. And of course, even if you solve for the inaccuracy problem, you still have the issue of using a heavily invasive tool against people who have done oftentimes nothing wrong. And so in that sense, it stands to also significantly endanger the right to protest, as mentioned before, because it affects a, a, a chill. It puts in a chilling effect that discourages people from exercising those rights because of fear of being caught. It's been used against Black Lives Matter protesters in the United States. In my own campaign, which is called Ban the Scan, we work to advocate for an individual who was protesting in June of 2020 and was captured using facial recognition for using a megaphone during a protest and was harassed outside of his residence for four to five hours by police officers who couldn't produce a warrant. Moving swiftly on to other forms of technology, emotion recognition, which we've seen an increasing uptake of, especially in the establishment of trustworthiness of individuals. So that would be especially for individuals such as migrant and otherwise mobile persons. First of all, the technology is based on bogus science rooted in eugenics, including physiognomy and phrenology. It applies logics of scientific racism to allegedly objectively establish someone's emotional state, sort of almost a test of what they're, of whether what they're saying appears to be true and in line with their emotional state. And again, if you take something that is supposed to make an objective observation, but is so fundamentally rooted in a subjective science that is tied to an ideology that is oppressive, you can't reasonably make any uh, facilitation for that technology, neither on human rights grounds nor on ethics grounds. You can't, again, ethics this technology to be good. Another form of technology, which I know Zara has also come across in her work extensively, is the iris scanning as a precursor for service delivery. So we've seen this in refugee camps. We've seen it, for example, in that study in, in Jordan. It disincentivizes trust, meaning that communities sometimes opt out of receiving vital goods and services. And it's incredibly vital that humanitarian organizations in particular don't create a coercive environment in which self-disclosure is rewarded with basic necessities. Those basic necessities should be provided regardless. So just to wrap up here, society organizations have a primary responsibility to ensure that they do not enable the creation of markets that exploit communities who are effectively in states of suspended rights. So by entering problematic contracts with tech actors that promise efficiency 
the inconvenience over the rights of service recipients. Civil society organizations are setting a precedent that, for example, migrants' rights are an inconvenience, that they're dispensable. They're also, by entering these contracts with tech actors to develop products that are also used to surveil and detain vulnerable communities. For example, as we've seen in the United States with Palantir's application in detention and deportation of undocumented immigrants, humanitarian orgs end up inadvertently legitimizing these companies and their products. So as Amnesty, we campaign to ban the most violent of these technologies, as well as those that are simply incompatible with international human rights law. But as a CSO and NGO community, we have this basic responsibility to carry out human rights impact assessments, data protection impact assessments, and to ask ourselves the question, could this technology further compound the predicament that our communities find themselves in right now? So as far as I'm personally concerned, technologies that are built entirely on the notion of the untrustworthiness, historically marginalizing other populations, or on the idea that these populations are available to be experimented on should simply not exist. And I'll stop there. Great. Thank you so much, Matt. All right. We are going to shift into the next section of this debate. Thank you. So in this section, this is space for the panelists to ask each other questions. But I am curious if either of the three of you, as you were listening to the other two, did questions pop into your mind that you want to address to each other now? I saw Matt nodding. Zaro. Uh, yeah, I have a question, Matt. Yes, fantastic. Um, I love the idea of just going for a, an abolish approach instead of trying to mitigate. We're beyond the point of harm mitigation with some of these technologies, I completely agree. But I'm curious what it looks like, given that, for example, facial recognition, emotion recognition is such an industry, or I guess maybe facial recognition more, it's such an industry. There's just so much money in it right now. What does abolishing that whole space look like? It's a, it's a really interesting question, and it's important that we realize that most of the work against the biometric technologies industry comes on the back of regulation, or at least those are the examples of, uh, and I, I hesitate to call that abolition work because it isn't, um, it isn't strictly abolition. It's, yeah. it's maybe drawing on that tradition. But the examples that we've seen of successfully fighting, uh, for example, facial recognition and other forms of biometric mass surveillance have been largely city or state-led in, for example, the, the United States, certainly, efforts by civil society organizations who have come together to lobby their local politicians to instate a usually a, a bill that had been drafted also by civil society and by defender services to uh, call for a ban on especially government uses, but sometimes also private uses. Of, of these technologies. Now, what's re really interesting for the bans that have come about that have encompassed private uses of facial recognition is that it, it creates, if we have enough bans that also include these private uses, then we end up significantly stifling the market for facial recognition, not just at this sort of government agency level, but also at the level of consumers using these technologies, schools using these technologies, other private entities using these technologies. And that can be a way of almost starving the market. But again, the market is so much bigger than the dozen cities and states that we've seen in the United States pass a ban on facial recognition. And so what we really would love to see is a broader movement, which for example, we saw with the launch of the ban biometric surveillance campaign with a, over 200 or so organizations who called for a global ban. But yeah, in practice, it looks like regulation or it has looked like regulation so far. 
there have been activists, sorry, just to finish that thought off, there have been activists in various cities that have gone around and sprayed over cameras that they believe were being used with facial recognition. So just literally destroying infrastructure, surveillance infrastructure, which is definitely uh, another approach that could be used to stifle the industry as it were, but it would, it would have to scale up a little bit more. I have a follow-up to that, Matt. If you mentioned that there were sort of local city and perhaps states within the United States that are enacting that, is that happening in other places around the world as well? And if it's not, is this an action step that CEOs like the people on this call, this might be something for them to move toward? Yeah, so there's two different things that I should mention on this. First of all, there are some European nations that in advance of facial recognition being rolled out at the level that we're seeing rolled out now, in Parliament decided that it wouldn't be lawful to deploy facial recognition. I think there are two countries in the EU, one of them is Luxembourg. There's also the AI regulation, the draft regulation that was published by the by the European Commission earlier this year which makes uh, significant prohibitions on live facial recognition, but doesn't necessarily make astringent prohibitions on non-live facial recognition. So that's footage that's captured and run through facial recognition after the fact. And there has been a tremendous amount of mobilization among CSOs and the digital rights and privacy rights and tech rights space in general to make that regulation stronger over the last few months. And what would be great for CSOs who are working with various different communities who may be affected by the use of facial recognition, for example, the regulation still allows for the usage against migrant populations in particular coming within Euro uh, European borders, would, would highly recommend that, that they get involved with also lobbying for, for stricter provisions and amendments within the, the AI regulation. Thank you for asking that question, Barb. Yeah, thanks for your answer. Tim, what about you? What questions do you have for either Zara or Matt? Actually, Zara bit me to, to it, but I <laughs> wanted to ask Matt um, what some kind of middle ground or compromise would look like. And this is from a point, my point of view where, you know, moving progressively to maybe finally completely abolishing. So what, what would that look like for you? So for me, the ban is the middle ground, Tim, and I know that's not a, <laughs> that's not a satisfactory answer, <laughs> but I, I know that there are calls for moratoria, certainly, which are time limited and which are limited to further investigation. I sincerely do not believe that we have inadequate evidence around the incompatibility of things like facial recognition with international human rights law. I also don't believe that we need further evidence to the bogus nature of emotion recognition, right? So it just appears to me that moratoria are a way of potentially dulling and appearing progressive on the matter. So the reason I mentioned that in particular is the way that, for example, Amazon at the time, IBM, Microsoft, instated bans on their development of facial recognition for a year in the wake of the killing of, of George Floyd after protests started running rampant, not just in the United States, but also across the world. What was key to note there is that the bans, the moratoria, were mostly faced towards the U.S. market and not outwardly. And the second thing to note there as well is that they were just for a year. And so these companies were free to resume that. There was no burden on them to prove that the technology was safe in order to lift that moratorium. The default was that they were free to lift it whenever they wanted. And a ban sort of flips that a little bit. A ban says that you need to, as a company, prove why this ban should be lifted. You should have a really, really good reason to why you should be exempt from this ban in order to be able to have it because this technology is so dangerous. So how much control do you feel organizations have over the types of interventions?
interventions they decide to deploy versus, because you mentioned donors, right? Versus pressure from donors. And do you have any good examples of resistance against donors? I'm really interested in generally like donor resistance and activism. So we'd love to hear more about your, your thoughts there. It's an interesting one. I mean, with the UNHCR Rohingya case, I heard kind of informally from people within UNHCR that it was pressure from the donors that was the reason why biometrics became such a thing. And I know there's other people on this call who know know that story much better than I do. And then actually what I heard from people who worked for the donors was, no, 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 it wasn't, wasn't us at all. It was it didn't come from us. I feel like it's sometimes used as an excuse almost, but I will say, I feel like there is pressure from donors or what I've heard, I guess the push to be accountable. Accountability is typically understood as accountability to donors instead of accountability to the people we're working with and for. And I think that's a complete, that's a really a missed opportunity in how technology is being leveraged and how technology is being used because technology does offer the potential to increase accountability to the people that need it the most, the people who hold the least amount of power in this situation. So one example is the reason behind using biometrics is often touted as fraud prevention and fraud is understood as refugees claiming more than their fair share of food supplies, for example, which in itself is a hugely problematic assumption, but that's for another time. And instead, you could imagine that biomet- or that some kind of technology would be used to show refugees, migrants, what's coming to show where they should be going to show what a humanitarian agency is providing them and how much has already been provided. Or I think if we flip that understanding of accountability, there's a ton of potential for how technology can be used. I think there is a lot of space also for some more concerted donor activism, particularly on humanitarian organizations, because humanitarian organizations are, you know, often, or UN agencies are immune from or um, exempt from legal regimes. So it really feels like donors are the only space or the only actors who could potentially pressure them into changing their behaviors and taking more recognition, acknowledgement of the massively negative impact they're having on people's lives in the way that they're using technology in some ways. So yeah, I'd say there's, there's exciting possibilities for that, for sure. Thank you for that, Zara. We're going to shift to the questions from the audience, but the first comes from Carl and he says that CSOs and NGOs tend to agree on principles, values, codes of conduct, etc. Is that enough? Shouldn't they advocate for laws and international agreements that are enforceable? Shouldn't CSOs using digital tools submit themselves to third party oversight and evaluation? Tim, we haven't heard from you in a little while, so I want to come to you first to see how you'd like to respond to this. Um, Thank you, Bob. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with what Carl is saying. Beyond just being able to define what our principles, what our values, I think CSOs should definitely advocate for laws and international agreements that are enforceable. And even to give an example of like what we're seeing more and more on the continent in Africa is Kenya, for instance put in place a data protection law and CSOs are being data processors are are subject to such laws. So I think it will definitely go a long way in ensuring some of the safeguards. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's a slightly leading question and the answer is yes, of course, they should be advocating for laws. I think obviously there are policy focused NGOs and ones that focus on other things outside of the UN. Most civil society organizations are subject to data protection legislation. And they are subject to third party oversight and evaluation. And that's the way it should be. Everyone should be accountable to 
the legal regimes in the places that they operate as a bare minimum. And it is just outrageous that we've got to 2021 and there are organizations, institutions as influential and who affect so many people's lives like different UN agencies who are not subject to any legal regime. That's just wild. And I think that's a big part of why they can do things like collect incredibly sensitive data without any good reason on a persecuted minority and then hand it back to the government that, and via another government, but hand it back to the government that committed genocide against said population, which is also wild. Yeah, I think at the very minimum, we should change that, but also submitting themselves to, I, th I don't think it should be a question of an organization choosing to submit themselves to third party oversight. That should just be part of, of something that comes with holding that much power. Power without accountability is a dangerous, dangerous game, no matter who holds that power. Yeah. The second question that we've gotten, I think it's worded slightly differently, but it's leading down sort of the similar road here. And it's that, Matt, you brought up the need to limit private use in addition to government of facial recognition tech and regulation as a means to achieve that. I was wondering if all the speakers could reflect on other tactics for locations where regulation isn't likely or feasible. And the reason I say that this seems connected to the previous question is that even though there are regulations and third-party oversight, Clearly, it isn't happening everywhere, like with the Rohingya population, if sensitive data has been collected and then taken back to their persecutors. So what happens in these in these situations? I think it goes beyond this question of facial recognition, although that's what Corinne was curious about. It's a bit more specific, but what are the things then that CSOs in particular, because this is the specifics that we're talking about, what they can do in places where the regulation isn't there? and not likely to come. I'm gonna start with Tim again. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll share from about some of the work we've been doing here on the continent, because in many situations and scenarios, as, as the person who asked the question, I said correctly, regulation and law, I mean, it's, it's not feasible, but one of the things we've been doing is just digital resilience support that we've been carrying out for civil society organizations. So basically skilling them to be able to fight things like Surveillance, like I mentioned, surveillance is one of the, the biggest challenges. And then ensuring they're able to commit to digital security as essential to their work, right from the point of realizing that they are an at-risk organization. So we really prioritize capacity building and we've done it in places like Central Africa, DRC. And then I think just the typical cyber hygiene stuff, you know, VPNs, I guess, password protected devices, and then building that community to be able to advocate rather for getting to a point where then laws and regulations are a feasible conversation to start. In our experience, that's, that's what we've been doing. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing the specific stories of what you've been doing to combat this. Matt, what about you? What's your perspective on tactics for locations where the regulation perhaps isn't feasible? I mean, it really comes down to the type of CSO that we're talking to, like in terms of being able to figure out like how much can they permit themselves to move between boundaries of what in an oppressive context might be considered illegal, but still necessary, or frankly, in any context be considered illegal, but still necessary in order to protect people's rights to privacy, amongst other things. So I'm hearing, Tim, in terms of advising communities that you service on how to protect themselves against biometric surveillance in particular. There are lots of guides around this particular, around how to use what's commonly referred to as dazzles makeup, for example, to obscure your face. 
when participating in protests or using stickers, as mentioned before, some organizations put sticker cameras that they believe can be used with facial recognition. A slightly more sort of radical and direct action approach that I've seen in some civil society organizations that have been particularly rooted in sort of a philosophy of abolition and a philosophy of uh, abolition of policing in particular has been the destruction of, of cameras, the destruction of devices that they believe were spying on their communities unduly. And, and this is this is certainly one approach that has been used again in context in which there is absolute no imaginable feasible way of being able to protect your community against a legal system and a system of policing that fundamentally is rigged against you. So in those cases, those sorts of actions, those neo-Luddite, as it were, tactics against these technologies become super important for survival. Thank you for that. Zara, what about you? Any thoughts that come to mind on this? Echoing, agreeing with what Tim and Matt have said, I'd say the only thing that came to my mind that hasn't already been said was the space of art as imagining, as a space for imagining different ways of resistance. Matt mentioned makeup, facial coverings and things that can be used to confuse facial recognition algorithms. And I know that started as a as an art project by a Berlin-based artist called Adam Harvey. And I guess just, I don't know, raising awareness among communities of what's happening so that they can decide what tactics they want to be using and what's most appropriate given the situation that they're in, the power that they hold or don't hold the better understandings that they have of their context. But I think lots of that starts with a knowledge of what's happening, transparency, or as much as we can grant it, as much as we can understand about, for example, the contracts around how this technology has been built, how it's been developed, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, certainly. And I, I love that actually, like making people aware of their options so that they can continue to protest, for example, if they want to, but there's there are ways for them to protect themselves. This does remind me too of the point that Matt made earlier, and we're running out of time, but I can't help but think as we're talking about these places where it's hard to regulate things like facial recognition and and things that the point made earlier of should these technologies even be built becomes to me a much even more important question because if someone had thought through how this could be used against people and all of the ramifications of that doesn't mean that it wouldn't have been built but there might have been different processes and a different fight for whether or not it actually happened and we wouldn't we won't always find ourselves in these now what do we do situations but more thinking ahead. So I want to thank the three of you for joining us today. And thank you for everyone who has been part of this call. And for those who did put questions into the chat, this is an important topic. And it's not an easy one because of these questions of where we are now with tech that we have and what happens with tech that comes in the future. Thank you for the stimulating questions and conversation and for sharing your expertise with us, all three of you. Thank you so much. Join us every first Thursday of the month at 1600 CET. You can engage with the featured thematic speakers via our website pre and post event. And the next event will be on the 7th of October. And the topic is cybersecurity. Is it a blind spot for civil society actors on the internet? So you can already register to join this event on the center's website in the digital debates section. On behalf of our wonderful three panelists and the International Civil Society Center, I'm Barbara Iverson. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time.